Well, you can turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Judges, chapter 6. Judges, chapter 6, as we start uh, the Gideon narrative, so it goes all the way to chapter 9, so it'll be a longer portion. Uh, We're just going to do chapter 6 this evening, and I'll begin reading at verse 1. Then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. Because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds which are in the mountains. So it was, whenever Israel had sown, Midianites would come up. Also Amalekites and the people of the east would come up against them. But they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza, and leave no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey. For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts. Both they and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites, and the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And it came to pass, when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel, who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. I delivered you out of the hand of the Egyptians and out of the hand of all who oppressed you and drove them out before you and gave you their land. Also, I said to you, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. You have not obeyed my voice. Now the angel of the Lord came and sat under the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abizarite, while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress, in order to hide it from the Midianites. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him and said to him, The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Gideon said to him, O my Lord, if the Lord is with us, why then has all this happened to us? And where are all his miracles, which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? Now the Lord has forsaken us and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. Then the Lord turned to him and said, Go in this this might of yours, and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? So he said to him, O my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. Then he said to him, If now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring you out my offering and set it before you. And he said, I will wait until you come back. So Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and unleavened bread from an ephah of flour. The meat he put in a basket and he put the broth in a pot. And he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of the God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. Then the angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff, which was in his hand, and touched the meat and the unleavened bread. And fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread. The angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. Now Gideon perceived that he was the angel of the Lord. And so Gideon said, Alas, O Lord God, for I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Then the Lord said to him, Peace be with you, do not fear, you shall not die. So Gideon built an altar there to the Lord and called it, The Lord is Peace. To this day it is still at Ophrah of the Abizrites. Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, 
Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has, and cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement, and take the second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image which you shall cut down. So Gideon took ten men from among his servants and did as the Lord had said to him. But because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. And when the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down, and the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they had inquired and asked, they said, Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Joash, Bring out your son, that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, and because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. But Joash said to all who stood against him, Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead for him be put to death by morning. If he is a god, let him plead for himself, because his altar has been torn down. Therefore on that day he called him Jerub Baal, saying, Let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. Then all the Midianites and Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together, and they crossed over and encamped in the valley of Jezreel. But the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizrites gathered behind him. And the Abizrites gathered, uh, and he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So Gideon said to God, If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, Look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. There is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground. Then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. And it was so. When he rose early the next morning and squeezed the fleece together, he wrung the dew out of the fleece, a bowl full of water. Then Gideon said to God, Do not be angry with me, but let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. Well, I learned a new term today. It's called doom scrolling. It's when you scroll through Facebook or throw, scroll through the news and you scroll through all the things that talk about doom and destruction and pain and sorrow and suffering and how depressing uh, that can be for our minds. What it shows us is how unsettling the world is. When we hear of wars and rumors of wars, when we hear of political ideological differences and wars happening at home, it's all just a bit perplexing and a bit disturbing when we consider how difficult the world is and how serious and scary a place the world is. It's also scary when we consider how unsettled our own souls can be with the very lives that we live. Persons not in Christ especially, who have no clarity on why there is despair and no hope, at least in their minds, on how to get out of that despair, it's very unsettling. And even for the Christian, often our faith can be weak, and though we believe in a sovereign God, our hearts can still be very disturbed with everything going on, but also with the circumstances of our own life as well. And this was the reality for Israel under Midian. They are disturbed. There is no peace. There is no peace with God. There is no peace in their lives. There is no peace with Midian. And it's a reality for Gideon uh, with all the things that he asks of God. 
God speaks, God says, here's what I'm going to do. Yet Gideon still needs encouragement. Gideon still needs assurances. Gideon still needs a sign that God will be with him. Because the question arises, where is Yahweh? It's on the lips of Gideon. Where is Yahweh? Why has he forsaken us? Now we know why Yahweh has forsaken them. Because Israel continues to violate the covenant. Israel continues to violate what is laid out in the book of Deuteronomy. Remember, the book of Deuteronomy is a foundation for the history of Israel. It's the foundation for what we see in Joshua, Judges, Samuel, so on and so forth. But it's also the foundation for what we see in the prophets as well. Israel was to obey God. And if they obeyed God, they would receive good things in the land. Remember, it's about life in the land. Salvation is never held out. If they do not do what is right, then cursing is going to come upon them. And so when they enter in during the time of Joshua, God fights for them. God is with them. Things start off well. But as we turn to Judges, we see the people begin to become like the Canaanites. We see the Canaanization of the people of Israel. They become just like the nations around them. And so we see these cycles, these sod cycles, sin, oppression, and deliverance. And so we start this uh, new cycle with Gideon this evening. And the problem that we see here is very clear. Conflict, enmity, or hostility that we have with God. God hates sin. God despises sin. And if one is in sin, one is an enemy of God. And Israel has to learn that lesson here as well. If they do not do what God says, they're going to be like the nations around them. The bigger problem isn't so much the Midianites. The bigger problem is that Israel is at war with God. Their sin is at war with the things of God. The carnal mind is enmity against God. It does not submit to God, cannot submit to God's law, nor can it. And even the people of God, even the people of God in the present evil age, in the intermediate state, as we still have the as we have the already, but we don't have the not yet. We can still struggle with trust in God. We can str- trust, uh, struggle to trust in the wise dispensation uh, and circumstances that God uh, brings forth in our lives. We can even struggle to take God at his word when he says that in Christ we have peace. We have right with God. We have peace with God. God is in control. And yet when something happens, we can freak out. When something happens, we can sometimes not have the peace that we ought to have. And so in Judges 6, we see the peace the Lord brings for a warring people. God is with his people. There is peace with God. And that's the message that God is trying to convey to Gideon and trying to convey to the salvation he's going to bring through Gideon as well. He's going to bring peace for a people uh, from oppression, but also a peace with people for those warring with God, at least in part, at least for some time. That's why we long for the new covenant and appreciate we are part of that new covenant. But under the old covenant, uh, they need to be reminded of this. And so we'll look at this idea of peace with God under two headings this evening. First of all, we'll see peace with the Lord, verses 1 through 24. And then secondly, we'll see peace through war, verses 25 through 40. So peace with the Lord, verses 1 through 24. Then we'll see peace through war, verses 25 through 40. 
So let's look first at peace with the Lord in verses 1 through 24. And notice we see the enmity. We see that hostility with the Lord in verses 1 through 10. And we see the restless life that Israel has under Midian in verses 1 through 6. So the cycle begins again. We saw that great and awesome deliverance through Barak the judge, through Deborah the prophetess, and through Jael the Kenite. God brought a great salvation to show that he is the one who saves his people from their sins. Remember, that's the main thrust and focus of the book of Judges. The people are wicked, yet Yahweh saves. Yahweh is the one who saves. And so Israel, though, sins again. Israel goes back into this cycle. Verse 1, then the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. So they're back into worshiping Baal. They're, They're not doing what Yahweh has said. And so this cycle continues. So they sin, and they're handed over. It is Yahweh is using Midian as an instrument of judgment. So the Lord delivered them into the hand of Midian for seven years, and the hand of Midian prevailed against Israel. The oppressors are Midianites. If you know your biblical history, you know that the Midianites are the half-brother of Isaac. Uh, Midian was a son of Keturah. That was Abraham's, I guess, he took another wife after Sarah died. Moses' father-in-law is a Midianite. And Moses probably fled. Uh, Midian is near the Sinai Peninsula. Um, as, uh, that, that is where, it, um, that's the location of, of Midian. And so Midian is used as an instrument. They're a semi-nomadic people. Uh, they're used by God. Uh, to oppress, to punish the people of Israel for violating God's law. And we see the destitution, we see the seriousness of the life uh, under the Midianites. Verse 2, because of the Midianites, the children of Israel made for themselves the dens, the caves, and the strongholds, which are in the mountains. They're like dogs. They're like animals. They cannot dwell in the open because here come these marauders, here come these Midianites, who are going to destroy their land and pillage their land. For seven years, they have to live in caves. For seven years, they have to live in a place where the grass does not grow. And so what happens is when they uh, then go and try and grow some uh, some, uh, seed, grow some produce, here come the Midianites and the Amalekites and the people of the east. Verse 3, whenever Israel had sown, the Midianites would come up. Also the Amalekites, the people of the east, They would come up against them. Every year this would happen. And they would encamp against them and destroy the produce of the earth as far as Gaza. And so Midian is quite far from Gaza. And as we're going to see that salvation is going to come from a deliverer who's in West Manasseh. And so he's still quite far away uh, from, from where Gaza is. It shows the extent of their marauding. Gaza is towards the east. Certainly Gaza has been in our mind in the past couple of days, but Gaza is towards, uh, uh, ancient Gaza is towards uh, the Mediterranean Sea. So we see their marauding. They would encamp and they would destroy the produce as far as Gaza. Here they come, the, the farmers of Israel are trying to grow some food, trying to thresh some wheat, and here they come. Every year they come and destroy it. And what's left over is for the Midianites. It's for their livestock. There's not enough livestock to go around. There is a life of destitution. These Canaanites are destroying their livelihood. They left no sustenance for Israel, neither sheep, nor ox, nor donkey, 
For they would come up with their livestock and their tents, coming in as numerous as locusts, both they uh, and their camels were without number, and they would enter the land to destroy it. So here come these marauders in huge droves, and uh, a terrifying time for the people of Israel. But as we know, it is Yahweh. It is God. It is God who is doing it, who is judging the people because of what Israel has done. We see that this is one of the curses in Deuteronomy chapter 28, verse 30. As Moses said, Moses warned, if you don't do what I say, here's what's, or what I say, what Yahweh says, then this is what's going to happen. Verse 30, you shall betroth the wife, but another man shall lie with her. You shall build a house, but you shall not dwell in it. You shall plant a vineyard, but shall not gather its grapes. Your ox shall be slaughtered before your eyes, and you shall not eat of it. Your donkey shall be violently taken away. And certainly we see some of that. A nation whom you have not known shall eat the fruit of your land and the produce of your labor, and you shall only be oppressed and crushed continually. Yahweh warned that. Moses warned that. And now we see a foretaste of the full curse that eventually comes. We see a glimpse of what, the, uh, the, what sin brings into this world. And we see what sin will bring uh, for the people of Israel according to the terms of that old covenant. So they are impoverished. They are destitute. They have nothing. Verse 6. So Israel was greatly impoverished because of the Midianites. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord. And remember, it's not a cry out of repentance. It's a cry out of of oppression. It's a cry out of pain. It's crying out because they're hurting. They're crying out because they cannot find anything to eat. So it is a restless life. It is a disturbed life under Midian. It's a disturbed life because of Israel's wickedness. And the reason is because they are primarily at war with God. Because they have conflict with God and God tells them this in verses 7 through 10. Dale Ralph Davis says, you'd think the first thing we would hear about would be the deliverer. We're going to get to the deliverer in verse 11, but the first one to come is a prophet. Remember we saw a prophetess with Deborah. She speaks on behalf of God. She speaks and raises up Barak the judge. She tells the people what's going to happen. And now we have another prophet come on the scene. Because the people of Israel needed a word. The people of Israel needed to be reminded. The people of Israel needed to be reminded of why there is conflict going on. And it's not so much conflict with Midian, it's conflict with Yahweh. And it came to pass when the children of Israel cried out to the Lord because of the Midianites, the Lord sent a prophet to the children of Israel who said to them, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I brought you up from Egypt and brought you out of the house of bondage. So he's recalling the exodus. Here's this prophet. Here's Yahweh's goodness. Here's Yahweh's kindness. This goes all the way back to Exodus chapter 12. He he delivered them out of the hand of the Egyptians, out of the hand of all who oppressed you, and drove them out before you and gave you their land. And we see the giving of that land, the taking of that land in the book of Joshua. And also I said to you, verse 10, I am the Lord your God. Do not fear. Do not worship the gods of the Amorites or the Canaanites as a whole in whose land you dwell. And we see those warnings in the book of Deuteronomy. Do not worship the other gods. I am the Lord your God. 
I am Yahweh. I am the God over all things, but I am the God who is for Israel. Listen to me. Heed my voice. I am gracious. I am good. And I am the one who ought to and is to be worshipped. And so they needed that word. They needed to be reminded. They had forgotten the goodness of the Lord. They had forgotten the good things that God had done for them. That's why preaching on the Lord's Day is so important. Because we can be forgetful of the good things that God has done. And sometimes we can be forgetful of the things that God asks of us as well. They forgot the demand of the Lord. They have not obeyed. You have not obeyed my voice. There's a reason these cycles keep happening. It is because Israel continues to go after the Baals and to worship idols rather than Yahweh uh, of Israel. But one thing that's very interesting, Dale Ralph Davis points this out. He says, notice God doesn't pronounce judgment, but proceeds to raise up a deliverer. And he proceeds to raise up a deliverer from a small place. Again, you see that side-by-side action going on again. Here's how terrible Israel is. Here's how vile man is. Here's how gracious God is. Salvation really is of the Lord. Salvation only comes from God. We cannot save ourselves. We need a, a Savior to come for us. And so we see God is the one who initiates and brings about this salvation. We see the peace that Gideon has with the Lord. And notice we see that word of the Lord for a restless deliverer in verses 11 through 16. And we see it is Yahweh who comes. It is the angel of the Lord who comes to the terebinth tree, which was in Ophrah, which belonged to Joash the Abitzrite, who while his son Gideon threshed wheat in the winepress in order to hide from the Midianites. He's threshing wheat in a winepress. Why is he doing that? Because if he threshed wheat outside, the Midianites would know. And so he's doing it the place where wine is made (laughs) instead, because he's hiding from the Midianites. And so the angel of the Lord appears to him. Now we've seen the angel of the Lord in Judges 2. The angel of the Lord comes again in Judges 14 with Mrs. Manoah and that birth narrative or the announcement of Samson. And as we see here and those other two places, the angel of the Lord is Yahweh. It is God who appears to them. The old boys, my old dead friends, Matthew Henry and John Gill, they say it's the eternal son. Now think about that theologically for a moment. As we come to the New Testament, who is the word? It is Jesus Christ. And how is it that we can know God? It's through the word who speaks to us. And so I'm perfectly fine theologically to go based on the whole of scripture to go with the old boys and say this very much for sure is God. And I can uh, with them say as well is the eternal son. Henry says the person that gave him the commission was an angel of the Lord. It should seem not a created angel, but the son of God himself. The eternal word, the Lord of the angels, who then appeared upon some great occasions in human shape as a prelude to what he intended in the fullness of time, when he would take our nature upon him, as we say, for good and all. So the old boys especially link and connect the angel of the Lord and say that he is the eternal son as a precursor to the time when the son would take on human flesh. And so the angel of the Lord comes 
And he speaks to Gideon, the son of Joash, the Abi is right. I say that. We don't know that I know fully how to say that. Abi is right sounds right to me. Uh, they were part of West Manasseh. We see them in Joshua 17. Uh, they're they're, uh, they're, they're a, a lowly clan under Manasseh. And uh, Joash is the father. Joash will come up more later. But he comes to Gideon. The angel of the Lord comes to Gideon. And notice what the angel of the Lord said to him in verse 12. The Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. Now we see kind of this interchange going on here, right? God says something to Gideon, Gideon responds. God assures him again, Gideon responds. There is this back and forth. I think the reason that this is happening here is to demonstrate the intimacy that man can have with God. And it demonstrates and is a foreshadow of the intimacy that we have through Jesus Christ. We, God speaks to us and we speak to him. We speak to him in prayer and he speaks to us in his word. Brethren, the communion with God is a great blessing. Communion with God is a great gift. Davis says, uh, sorry, I'm, I'm not there yet. Never mind. Um, I'll get there in a sec. Uh, but verse 12, he says, he gives us assurance, the Lord is with you, you mighty man of valor. And as we're going to see, Gideon doesn't sound like a mighty man of valor, does he? But the point is, he's going to be strong because he's going to be strong in the Lord. And then in verse 14, we have the assurance again, the Lord says to him, and notice the Lord, said the angel of the Lord, but it's the Lord, says to him, go in this might of yours and you shall save Israel from the hand of the Midianites. Have I not sent you? And then again in verse 16, the Lord said to him, Surely I will be with you, and you shall defeat the Midianites as one man. I will be with you. I will be with you. I will be with you. Have I not sent you? God is going to be the one who does it, and he gives the assurance to the one he is raising up as that deliverer. It's a comforting, comforting word from the Lord that he gives to Gideon. But Gideon has some struggles. Verse 13, Gideon questions the word of the Lord. It just, and to remember to Gideon, it just looks like a man at this point. We have, we have divine eavesdropping, right? We know it's the angel of the Lord. We know it's God. Gideon doesn't know that yet. And so here is this guy here standing before him and he says, yeah, the Lord is with you. Okay, man who just appeared to me. And so Gideon says, verse 13, Oh, my Lord, he's very respectful. If the Lord is with us, why then is all this happening to us? Why has all this happened to us? Where are all his miracles, of which our fathers told us about, saying, Did not the Lord bring us up from Egypt? But now the Lord has forsaken and delivered us into the hands of the Midianites. We have heard certain things. We have heard things in the past. We heard about what Yahweh did. But what's that to us now? How do those old stories help us now? We heard about the miracles, but we don't see any now. Well, that's what verses 7 through 10 are for. It is the same God who delivered the people out of the land of Egypt that is going to deliver them. It's the same God who delivered them as they crossed the sea and guided them. It's the same God who fought for them as they entered into the land. But Israel needed that reminder. There were no miracles. There, wasn't, there weren't many words from the Lord. But the people had the remembrance of what Yahweh had done, but they had rejected that 
very thing. It's so hard. It's difficult. Why is this happening to us is kind of how it sounds. But he needs that reminder. Israel needs that reminder that it is the same God. The God who delivered them out of Egypt is going to deliver them out of the hands of the Midianites. And so after he says that again, God affirms, go in your might. I will fight for you. I will be with you. Have I not sent you? And then verse 15, he says again, Oh my Lord, how can I save Israel? Indeed, my clan is the weakest in Manasseh, and I am the least in my father's house. And so God does bring a great salvation through the least of these, through this one who is kind of fearful, cautious, Yet, as we see, he still goes in the Lord and he still obeys the Lord God to some degree uh, in this first part anyway. So the Lord gives him that assurance, I will be with you. And then Gideon speaks again. See that interplay? He's got concerns. Why is this happening? What's going on? Why are the Midianites here? Well, God will fight for you. Then he said to him, if now I have found favor in your sight, then show me a sign that it is you who talk with me. Do not depart from here, I pray, until I come to you and bring out my offering and set it before you. You know, if I was speaking to Gideon, and this is the fourth time he's spoken to me, I'm like, I told you already. But that's not what Yahweh does. He's very gracious and patient with a weak and feeble people. He's very gracious and patient with a fragile people. And as much as we don't like to admit it, we are more fragile than we think. And so he says... I will wait until you come back. Yahweh says, I will wait. I will grant that to you. I will hear you can, I will give you this assurance. Here's this confirmation. The Lord speaks, but Gideon wants some confirmation. And so he does give it. I don't know that I get all the reasoning behind the things used in verses 19 and 20, but Gideon went in and prepared a young goat and an unleavened bread from an ephah of flour and The meat he put in a basket, and he put the broth in a pot, and he brought them out to him under the terebinth tree and presented them. The angel of God said to him, Take the meat and the unleavened bread and lay them on this rock and pour out the broth. And he did so. So he's obedient. He's doing what the angel says. Verse 21, The angel of the Lord put out the end of the staff that was in his hand, touched the meat and the unleavened bread, and fire rose out of the rock and consumed the meat and the unleavened bread And the angel of the Lord departed out of his sight. So the angel of the Lord appears to him. The angel of the Lord now demonstrates. He is the one who consumes this sacrifice, demonstrating that he is God. And we see the response from Gideon. It's a good response. He perceived, verse 22, he was the angel of the Lord. So Gideon said, alas, O Lord God, I have seen the angel of the Lord face to face. Terror strikes him. That was something that was lacking in Israel as well. They did not fear Yahweh in a right and holy way. But I think that's a problem in our modern times as well. We do not fear God and recognize that he is holy, holy, holy. We ought to rejoice before him. We ought to praise his name. We ought to recognize the peace that we have with God. We also need to recognize he is God and we are man and he is worthy of worship and he is uh, certainly because he has uh, redeemed us, but also because he is God. Dale Ralph Davis kind of ta- speaks to this. 
and talks about this in light of the gift it is to commune with God, and yet we don't. Such talk is strange to us. We long to reach our warm hand through the print of our Bible page, pat Gideon's shoulder and soothe him with, don't worry, brother, Gideon's God, uh, brother, Gideon's God, um, brother Gideon, God's not really scary like that. Here's what the New Testament, we need the New Testament. A pain perplexed look would come over Gideon as if he had just heard a theological ignoramus. And so he did. This sort of talk is strange to us. This fearfulness, this what has gone on, what has happened. This sort of talk is strange to us because we have no real sense of the terror and awesomeness of God. For we think intimacy with God is an inalienable right rather than an indescribable gift. Brethren, communing with God is a gift. Mm-hmm. Communing with the triune God is a gift. Communing with a holy, our holy God is a gift. And if we are in Christ Jesus, we who were once enemies are now friends and we can speak to him. And so when we do so, we should do so with that intimacy, with that close connection, you know, father-son language that we see adopted as sons, that language, that intimate language, but also with that reverence, like hopefully a child has for their father, if their father is a good father, uh, recognizing who their father is or recognizing the, the authority their father has and finding strength and refuge in their father. And that's what we ought to do with our God recognizing who he is, and recognizing that we have peace with God. God, if we, uh, if we remain in our sin, if we were dead in our sin, we should be consumed. But we're not. And God conveys this message of peace in verse 23. Then the angel of the Lord said to him, Peace be with you. Do not fear. You shall not die. How is it that he's not going to die unless God is gracious? How is it that he's not going to die unless God is kind. And so he says, peace, shalom with you. Do not fear, you shall not die. And so Gideon then builds this altar to the Lord and called it Yahweh Shalom. The Lord is peace. And there is that assurance, at least at the time of the writing, to this day it is still an Ophra of the Abizrites, still there and present at the time this was written. The Lord demonstrated he would not war with Gideon, but he would be with him. Peace be with you. And as we consider the New Testament, as we consider, you know, theological language, when we talk about sin, what does sin bring? It brings enmity. It brings that chasm. It brings that hostility. Us with God and God with us, because God hates and despises sin. Sin brings an unsettled soul in life, but thankfully with God, there is peace that we can have. If one dies in their sin, they're going to have conflict with God and be punished forever. God is going to win the battle. If one is not in Christ, they're at enmity with God. They're at war with God. They're an enemy of God, and they're going to lose. They're going to lose that battle. And the only way to have peace with God is through whom? Through Jesus Christ. This is New Testament language. This is what Paul says in Ephesians, talking about the peace between Jew and Gentile, but also what he says in Colossians, which we saw last year. Colossians chapter 1, talking about the dwelling and the nearness of God, talking about uh, the please the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth or things in heaven, 
having made peace through the blood of his cross. That's a bit perplexing, isn't it, as well? The cross brings destruction, and yet it is through peace, through the cross, that peace comes. It's through Christ dying on that cross, Christ bearing the wrath of God in the stead of his people, that we can then have peace with God. And it is a great gift, a great gift that we take for granted. We still struggle, we have remaining corruption, the things that are good for us, we do not do as much as we ought or should. I long for heaven when we won't have the remaining corruption in our hearts. But, you know, it ought to spur us on to remind us to, to be assured of the peace that Jesus brings. And if we have that peace, we ought then to speak with God. We ought to then do the things that God asks of us. But also recognize that when we fall and when we sin... There is a good and gracious God we can go to because of what Christ has done. So, peace with the Lord, peace through Jesus Christ. I think that is what we see in verses 1 through 24. But we also see peace through war, verses 25 through 40. And notice, peace with the Lord means war with Baal. Baal is tolerant, Yahweh is jealous. That's what David says. Baal is tolerant. Yahweh is jealous. He requires exclusive worship. And so to have peace with God, our idols must be smashed. And that's exactly what God says uh, and commands that Gideon would do. So verse 25, Now it came to pass the same night that the Lord said to him, Take your father's young bull, the second bull of seven years old, and tear down the altar of Baal that your father has. That's interesting. The Baal shrine, the Baal altar, is in Gideon's house. That's how close, that's how near, that's how uh, a present idolatry is in the house of Gideon. It's in his father's house. So go into your father's house. Not only are you going to make the other, the, the other Manassites mad, but you're going to make your father mad possibly as well. God did say, do not come to bring peace but a sword, and we see that very, uh, very clear here. Tear down that altar of your fathers, cut down the wooden image that is beside it, and build an altar to the Lord your God on top of this rock in the proper arrangement. And take that second bull and offer a burnt sacrifice with the wood of the image, which you shall cut down. This is a lesson for Israel. There's an encouragement, there's a kindness, there's a goodness of God. But there's also a bit of a warning, a bit of a reminder a bit of a, a serious kind of rebuke to Israel. Yahweh only. Stop worshiping the Baals. Stop worshiping Baal and Yahweh. Just worship Yahweh. And in order to demonstrate that allegiance to Yahweh, you must destroy the Baals. You must destroy those high places. And so Gideon does that. Now notice it's not heroism. He's a fearful man, but he still obeys. He still does it by... He does it by night rather than by day. So Gideon took 10 men. So probably indicates that his father was quite wealthy. So he took 10 men from among his servants and did as the Lord said to him. Because, but because he feared his father's household and the men of the city too much to do it by day, he did it by night. So he obeys, but he's still timid. There's a good that God has called him to do. And that is, he must, you know, destroy idolatrous worship in his father's house. But that's going to have to require some courage, even if he does do, uh, demonstrate that courage more by day. We'll take baby steps. We'll do it by night instead of by day. And so he does it, and the men wake up. And this is great. 
It's, it's not great in the sense of what's going on, but I love how funny the Bible is. Because the, it's, you know, they don't see it. They don't recognize their problem, do they? They don't see how ridiculous they're being. Notice their outrage. Verse 28. When the men of the city arose early in the morning, there was the altar of Baal torn down. And the wooden image that was beside it was cut down, and the second bull was being offered on the altar which had been built. So they said to one another, Who has done this thing? And when they inquired and asked, they said, It was Gideon, the son of Joash, has done this thing. Then the men of the city said to Josh, Bring out your son that he may die, because he has torn down the altar of Baal, because he has cut down the wooden image that was beside it. They're concerned with Baal. They're concerned with their altar being torn down. They're more concerned with the things of Baal than they are with the things of God. They have this selective outrage, selective commitment, and they don't see what they're doing. It's like we've seen with the prophet Hosea, the people of Israel lacked self-awareness, lacked an understanding, lacked self-examination, lacked the ability to recognize that maybe they were the ones who are wrong. Brother, wouldn't it be great if every day we had a recorder that played through all the things that we say or do? Because then we could play it back and hear all the silly things that we say. We don't realize the times we open our mouths when we shouldn't, We don't realize the times that we think, I should comment. But in reality, we probably shouldn't. As we're going to tweet, as we're going to Facebook, ask yourselves, do I really need to do this? The answer is always no. The answer is always never. Unless you have a PhD in theology, unless you've read for 15 years, then you can do that very thing. And some of you are like, Mike, you lack self-aware. I know. I know I lack self-awareness. I understand. But you all get what I'm saying. You see, there is this outrage that we can have. We get outraged and upset on Twitter over theology, but we don't realize that we sound like jerks for Jesus. Right? I'm all for defending the truth. I'm all for standing up for the things of God. I'm all for those types of things. But wisdom, dear brethren... Wisdom is required with all of this. Wisdom is needed. We need to be slow to speak and quick to listen. And they have it here. They don't realize they're getting upset and angry and Baal and all, but they were worshiping Baal. That was the bigger issue. Sometimes, brother, we can get angry at the way people say things and angry at the things that the pastor says sometimes rather than be angry with our own sins and our own pride, and our own arrogance, and think that we have the answers to everything. And even using highfalutin language, Christianese language, just to make it justify what we're doing, I prayed about it. Oh, good for you, you prayed about it. I prayed about it too, so what does that mean? See how that happens, brethren? We can be outraged over silly, ridiculous things, and not realizing that we can be big, huge jerks for Jesus not realizing that our idol of pride rears its head more than anything. Our idols are more sophisticated, right, than all the Baals and the Asherahs. You know, we got our phones, we have our pride, we have ourselves, we have our work, we have our, sometimes kids can be that way as well. I love my children, but we can have idol worship in those things. Brethren, our, our idols are more sophisticated. And there is the serious reality that, you know, we are forgiven in Christ. We are saved by grace alone, through faith alone in Jesus Christ. But 
with our remaining corruption, we still have those idols that come up. We cannot serve God and mammon. You cannot serve God and mammon. And so, they're in outrage, but then, an interesting voice. Maybe the glass has broken, he realizes, and now he's aware. It's an awareness that comes from God, verse 31. But Joash said to all who stood against him, he probably cares more for his son than, than Baal. Would you plead for Baal? Would you save him? Let the one who would plead. This is how ridiculous they're being. They're angry over a piece of wood. They're angry over one who cannot plead. Let him plead. If he is a God, let him plead for himself because his altar has been torn down. Let him give a defense. This is similar language we see in 1 Kings 18 when Elijah is battling the prophets of Baal. Let him defend himself. Where is your God? Perhaps he's relieving himself. Where is he? Where is your God? You see, that's how ridiculous idolatry is. We look as ridiculous as the, as the Manassites when we love our idols more than God. Now again, there's mercy and forgiveness in Christ, but sometimes we need to say and use language like Joash. Would, really? Therefore, on that day, he called him Jerubbaal, saying, let Baal plead against him because he has torn down his altar. What can Baal do? Baal can do nothing. What can you do against God? You can do nothing. What can our phones do against, uh, toward God? Nothing. God is God, and we are man. And he deserves our worship, not that he needs anything. Remember, God glorify, uh, enjoys his glory. He is his glory, and he enjoys his glory forever. And our task in life is to glorify him. But he doesn't need anything from us, yet he is good to us. And so through this, God does show them of their ridiculousness. And then the time for war comes up again. So there's this war, this destroying of the idols, but then there's going to be war with Midian as well. So it's year eight. It's time for the marauding to happen again, the plundering. Verse 33, then all the Midianites and the Amalekites, the people of the east, gathered together and they crossed over and camped in the valley of Jezreel. But this time, the Spirit of the Lord came upon Gideon. Remember, that's used in a special way to raise up the deliverer, to equip him to do what he's supposed to do, to equip him to save the people of God. So he does that. The Lord is with him. This time it's different. They're not going to maraud like they used to. God is going to deliver, uh, going to save Israel. Then he blew the trumpet, and the Abizrites gathered him. And he sent messengers throughout all Manasseh, who also gathered behind him. He also sent messengers to Asher, Zebulun, and Naphtali, and they came up to meet them. So God has chosen him. God has raised him up. God has equipped him. Same thing is true in the ministry in the New Testament era, the New Testament uh, New Covenant under the church. God raised up pastors and deacons, and he equips them with those gifts. Uh, and he gives them those abilities that are demonstrated and evidenced in time and space. And so God also gives Gideon what he's going to need as well, namely himself. And even though God is assured, God has promised, God has said, Gideon still asks again for a sign. This is the perhaps part we know, the fleece part, and then we know the 300 men, but the fleece part. We see, especially two, well, well, one phrase that's repeated, as you have said. 
Verse 36. If you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said, look, I shall put a fleece of wool on the threshing floor. If there is dew on the fleece only, and it is dry on all the ground, then I shall know that you will save Israel by my hand, as you have said. He asked for a sign. And it was so. God obliges again. Davis calls this a a cautious faith. He is seeking a sign. Gill says not that he doubted it, but was willing to have a confirmation of his faith. Now remember, Gideon is also in Hebrews 11. He is another man mentioned with Barak and Jephthah and Samson. Uh, But a confirmation of his faith. And perhaps his view was more for the encouragement of those that were with him than himself. That he desired the following signs, and though he had had one before, that was to show that he was truly an angel that spoke to him. And not to ascertain the salvation that should be wrought by him. But that might be concluded from his being an angel that spoke to him and assured him of it. So an assurance that the angel speaks, an assurance of salvation. And God obliges. It was so. He rises early the next morning, squeezed the fleece together, wrung the dew of the fleece, a bowl full of water. And then Gideon asks again to demonstrate further because typically fleece absorbs water. So the next sort of request is more a very supernatural request. Anti, it goes against nature. Do not be angry with me. Let me speak just once more. Let me test, I pray, just once more with the fleece. Let it now be dry only on the fleece, but on all the ground let there be dew. And God did so that night. It was dry on the fleece only, but there was dew on all the ground. God obliges. God provides. God stoops to his nature. God helps this man in his fragile faith. It is still faith. It is a cautious faith. But God gives him the assurance that he needs. And he does so by stooping to his nature. And that's exactly what we see in the Lord's Supper. Davis connects it with the Lord's Supper. It is God stooping to our nature. Christ at the right hand of God. We partake of Christ by faith. But the sign signifies what Christ has done. We see, when we see that bread and wine, it helps us, doesn't it? But Christ's body broken and we are feeding upon Christ, not the literal body and blood of Christ, but feeding upon Christ actually, really, by faith and by the Spirit. But it's God stooping to our nature and giving us the assurance that we need. And we need that assurance in a world filled with swords, don't we? We need that assurance in a world filled with enmity. Now we must understand that God comes and he brings a sword to our idols, doesn't he? He destroys those idols. When we see the language in 1 Thessalonians 1, what is it? They turn from their idols to the true and living God. You cannot serve God and mammon. You must believe on Christ as your Lord. You cannot believe a little bit of Christ, a little bit of Muhammad, a little bit of Brahman. You can't do that. It has to be Christ. It can't be Christ and my money, Christ and my phone, Christ and my... No, it has to be Christ. Believing on Jesus Christ as the only way of salvation. Yes, we're still going to struggle, but it's salvation found in him and him alone. If you look to him, if you believe on him, you shall be saved. We see many times, many examples of missionaries. They go to these heathen, and what do they do? God saves them, and what do they do? They smash their idols. They have burning parties, don't they? They burn their idols because they're just that. They're idols. 
I know one story of a missionary going down to chop down a tree because the people thought a spirit lived in it. He's chopping down that tree and they're like, oh, what's going to... Tree falls over. People don't know what to do because it's just a tree. Nothing happens to him. You see, people need to be shown and uh, that there is one God and God shows that uh, and demonstrates that in the gospel. And God does demonstrate that as he saves people from their sins and turns people from their idols to the true and living God. Paul is provoked by idols. Paul says to, you know, the uh, certain men that we're just men. We're not idols. We're not gods. There is one who is the true and living God. So idols are smashed, but thankfully there is peace with God. And thankfully it reminds us that as we have peace with God, I mean, Galatians 5, one of the fruit of the spirit is peace. We have this calmness. We have this relationship with God. We have this, uh, we're not disturbed. Our relationship is reconciled because of Jesus Christ. But because our life is still filled with unsettling things, we can have questions like Gideon, right? Gideon had a lot of questions. And so we need to be reminded that God is sovereign. We need to be reminded in a time of where things are unsettled, we have peace with God. And as we walk this world, we can have peace knowing that he is God. That is difficult for us to understand, dear brother, but it's something we must recognize and realize. We have peace with God now, and we have God who is with us now. That was the assurance he gave to Moses, Exodus 3, as he was about to go tell the people and God deliver the people out of Egypt. It's what the assurance he gave to Joshua as they're about to enter the land and fight all the Canaanites. I will be with you. It's the assurance he gives us. Hebrews 12, I will never leave you nor forsake you. And so we need to submit to God's providences, don't we? We don't always understand why. We don't understand the details as to why certain things happen. Davis says, like Israel, we may want to escape our circumstances, but God wants us to interpret them. That is, maybe we're going through a difficult thing for a reason. What is the highest good for us? It's to dwell with God. What is the highest good for the Christian to be like, or what is, a good, for, what is good for the Christian to be like Christ? And sometimes being more like Christ, that requires what? It requires us to go through something we perceive as difficult and a difficult circumstance, but it might be teaching us more of our need for the Lord and our Lord and Savior. And that's why Joseph can say what man means for evil, God means for good, because God knows what is best for us. Davis says, sometimes we may need to understand more than have relief. Sometimes God must give us insight before he dare grant safety. We need to submit to him. We need to trust in him. He gives us the strength in the midst of those trials. He delivers us from those trials. And he is with us to the end of the age. Davis once again says, basically, God has nothing else or more to offer you. God is with you. You can go through a lot with that promise. It does not answer your questions about details. It only provides the essential. Nothing about when or how, how or where or why. Only the what or better, the who. That's the assurance we have. 
And that's the assurance the church has. What does Jesus say? What's the last verse of Matthew 28, 20? Behold, I am with you to the end of the age. Well, let us pray. Our gracious God, we are thankful for the peace that we have with you through our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you that the peace that we have with you is brought about through the cross of Christ and the blood that was shed upon Calvary's tree. And so often we can be forgetful of these things, and so we're thankful for the reminders you give, the reminders you give on your Lord's Day, the reminders you give on Wednesdays of who you are and what you've done for us. For so often we are perplexed, we are downcast, we are heavy laden, we are forgetful, and so we are thankful we can be reminded that you are with us. And so when we feel like you are, it feels as though you're not with us, help us to come back to your word. Help us to be reminded of the peace that we have, Help us to be reminded of the nearness, uh, uh, your nearness to us. Help us to be reminded of your presence with us by the Spirit, uh, especially as we walk through a world that is filled with unsettling things. Help us to know that you are with your church to the end of the age. You will guide her and keep her and protect her. And we long for the time where she is presented holy and without spot and blameless on that day. Thank you for these promises that you give to us, and we pray that you would help us to submit to your ways, help us to have peace uh, with the difficulties that arise, help us to trust in your ways with the difficulties that arise, knowing that they are for our good. And thank you for that promise that 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 is for your people. All things that we endure in this life is for our good. Even the hardships, even the circumstances, even the perplexities that it teaches us to look to you more. So thank you for your goodness. Thank you for your mercy and grace. And we pray that you be with us now as we go into the world. And we pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.